Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Nightmare Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. Nightmare Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams and Wendy Wagner. As a listener to this podcast, you know that we publish the magazine and most of the rest of our content for free online. If you don't already support our Hugo Award-winning journal, please consider checking out our many options, including ebook subscriptions and recurring patronage via Patreon and Drip at lightspeedmagazine.com support. Enough about that for now. On to the stories. The stories of this podcast are produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are directed by Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure, in association with Jim Freund, and for this one, yours truly. Our first offering for the March issue is Mr. Try Again by A. Merck Rustad. The story is read for you by Pandora Q. Mr. Try Again is copyright 2018 by A. Merck Rustad. A. Merkristad is a queer, non-binary writer who lives in Minnesota and is a 2016 Nebula Awards finalist. Their stories have appeared in Lightspeed, Fireside, Apex, Uncanny, Shimmer, and several years' best anthologies. You can find Merk on Twitter at Merk underscore Rustad, or their website at amerkristad.com. Their debut short story collection, So You Want to Be a Robot, is published by Lethe Press, May 2017. And so ends this week's intro. So, without further ado, let's have a nightmare. Mr. Try Again by A. Merck Rustad Six-year-old Violet Wellington was the only child to come out of the swamp. The boys were gone forever. She sat on the side of a muddied dirt road, digging her nails raw against the gravel. Her jeans and pink t-shirt were damp but clean. She had a scrape over her left eyebrow, and her hair smelled of mildew. Unharmed otherwise. Dogs and professionals and volunteers spent days trying to find the other bodies. Violet couldn't help. She wouldn't draw pictures. She wouldn't answer questions. She wouldn't be cajoled with sugar and promises that everything is okay now. You're safe. No one can hurt you. Three families resisted funerals, clinging to possibility. Violet didn't talk for seven weeks after her miraculous reappearance. When she did... She just said, try again, try again, try again. Violet grew older. The boys were never found. No one knew why four children vanished one day. No one ever really knows. Eventually, 
Authorities said there was nothing to be done. No bones, no closure. I tell you this because it's not important. What happened in the swamp doesn't matter. The boys are dead. That's obvious. My name was Violet when I went into the swamp. That wasn't my name when I came out. It's never been my name again. Violet died with the boys. I thought that was obvious, too. While the media went into a feeding frenzy for fresh facts, the girl who wasn't Violet attended therapy and watched her parents divorce and told the cops nothing about Mr. Try again. Where he was, what he looked like, what he had done to those poor boys. That's because she never told anyone about Mr. Try again. If she told, then someone else would find Mr. Try again, and she couldn't have that. The girl who came out of the swamp had not been entirely alive. It makes sense that this part-dead girl would eventually grow up and decide to keep Mr. Tryagain's existence all to herself. No, Violet. That's not how you hold the spoon. Try again. You know the movie Alien? Its tagline says no one in space can hear you scream. But that's not true. Ripley heard her crewmates screaming. The alien heard. When you watch it on your TV, you hear the people screaming. I hear the boys' screams, mostly. Violet didn't make a sound when the boys died. That's why she survived, even though she wasn't alive. But I suppose you've seen vampire movies and zombie movies, right? Undead, not dead, a corpse walking, talking, breathing, never smiling, though. That's for people who are alive. Ah, my little Judas goat, that is not how I taught you to hold a knife. Try again. Sixteen years, three months, and twenty-eight days pass since Violet was found. When my parents leave, I stay in the house on the dirt road, the one a mile from the swamp. I can't move anywhere else. This is the place, with bland gray siding, a patched shingle roof, unkempt hedges, that Violet remembered. It was the house that kept her sane. In July, a family moves into the long unsold lot in the unfinished cul-de-sac next to me. A man and a woman and a seven-year-old girl all white, all fake smiles and false prosperity. The man beats his wife when he thinks no one notices. He yells at the daughter, spills abuse over the top of beer cans and knuckled fists. He'd kill them both one night, when no one is around to see. Everyone who knew him will say that he wasn't like that, that it was just a mistake. That's how these stories go. 
the girl might try and tell someone. A teacher, a relative, a stranger. She won't be believed. Because girls always lie. So I watch the girl. She's a loner. Quiet, reserved. Content to play in the grass behind the house with imaginary friends. Sometimes she strays. Dear Violet, my sweet little flower, this one is too small, and this one is too skinny. You know what I need. Try again. The neighbor woman's name is Kathy. Her husband's name is irrelevant, and her daughter is called Judith. When the man leaves for work, when Kathy is home from her part-time job at an antique shop in town, when Judith is exploring the woods that rub up against the swamp, I go over to visit. We sit on her front porch, awkward, drinking cold tea and remarking on the weather. But I see relief in Kathy's eyes when I'm there. She isn't alone the sole barrier between the man in her house and her daughter. I visit as often as possible, and the man never knows. I rarely leave my house, so these trips across the cul-de-sac's cracked asphalt circle to Kathy's door are cathartic. Grocery delivery keeps me fed. Shopping online satisfies other needs and I live off residual income from royalties earned by the true crime book written about Violet Wellington. You're trapped, I tell Kathy one afternoon. Thunderstorms bubble in the distance. With that man. My husband? She laughs, brittle, and glances over her shoulder, as if afraid he'll hear. The bruising along her collarbone spills down her v-neck shirt, and she breathes shallowly, nursing cracked ribs. One eye is swollen purple. She ran into the door, like she always does. Judith is sitting beside the porch. She thinks neither her mother nor I can tell she's there, hidden in half-shadow and gripping a fist-sized rock. She carries that rock with her everywhere, sometimes in the pocket of her jeans, sometimes in a tattered backpack. I imagine it's under her pillow at night. Nonsense, Kathy says, waving a hand. There are no flies abuzz. Even with the swamps so near, there are never any insects around me. He's a good man. He just gets stressed, you know? The economy is tough. He's going to kill you, I tell her, very soon. Kathy asks me to leave. I won't be invited back to the porch. Judith watches, and I know the girl believes me, even if her mother won't. Violet Wellington has been missing for eight months, fourteen days, and seven hours total. In the space of those months, 13 little boys went missing across the state, 
all near or around the wetland. No one connected the dots. Judith knocks on my door, one night in late August, when the stars are limp and listless in the smog-black sky. Mosquitoes vanish at the edge of my senses, and Judith scratches at old bug-bite swells on her arms. Hi, she says when I answer the door. She shoves her hand in her pocket where the rock bulges. My dad's shouting again. I can hear the man's loud, gutless bleeding. Puffed-up lungs full of word bile and violence. It's oppressively hot, over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, with sticky, damp humidity that sucks the patience from saints. There are brownouts all over the grid. No AC. No breeze to calm frayed nerves. I lit candles in my window sills to guide the loss to my door. Judith grinds her teeth. Did you mean what you said a while back? She has that slow-burn fury in her gut. I smell it like popped blisters. Is he gonna kill my mom? Yes, I say. Probably tonight. It's a murder night, all sullen air and repressed rage. I think she knows the truth, like I do. It's why she came. Do you want me to stop him? Violet didn't like the swamp. It smelled like bad breath, and the mud sucked at her feet, and her arms itched with mosquito bites. But her new puppy named Peaches had run off into the cattails and brown grassy humps, and she promised, promised, promised Daddy that she'd take care of the puppy. She had to find Peaches, or she'd never get another pet again, and that was a terrible thought. It was getting dark. The scary kind of dark where boogeymen creep out of closets and ghosts jumped out to shout boo. Peaches! Violet yelled. She soft yelled, though, just in case there were ghosts nearby. Come here, girl! Are you looking for your lost puppy? said a voice behind her. This one, perhaps? Violet spun around. There was a tall man in a white tuxedo standing there, not at all ghostly, and he smiled very wide and held Peaches under one arm. His eyes were weird. Violet couldn't quite tell where they were on his face. Yes, that's my puppy. Violet held out her hands. It was bad to talk to strangers, but it was more bad to go home without Peaches. How do you ask nicely, little flower girl? the man said. Violet frowned. Please? He laughed. <laughs> no, Violet. Try again. The man has killed Kathy before Judith and I cross the cul-de-sac. She lies broken-faced on the kitchen floor, staining the linoleum red. He's ransacking the house, looking for the girl. I make him stop. I make him into very small, very bloody pieces, so he will go away 
forever. Judith watches and doesn't flinch. She's not the kind of girl who cries either. Sorry, I tell her. Try again. I should have come last night. Or a week ago. A month. The day he moved in, and I saw Kathy's shoulder when her sleeve rolled up while she carried a box. Judith just stares at the pieces of the man. That's okay. I know how to dispose of bodies. The cops will arrest you, Judith says at last. She looks much older than she is. Time passes differently when you survive. Won't they? I suppose. The thing about news stories is that they fade. And soon everything cycles all over again. Reporters will ask questions and forget answers. Authorities will sweep the uncomfortable details into locked case files and redacted testimonies. Statistics will label Kathy a victim and move on. Maybe there will be a funeral. And maybe sad co-workers or distant relatives will attend, shake their heads about the tragedy, and forget about it within a week. Judith sniffs, rubbing her nose with the back of a hand. Her fist is clamped around the rock. I don't want to go into foster care. Mom didn't have any friends or family, and, and he... Don't say his name. I pat her on the shoulder. Her back is rigid, muscles taut like guitar strings. He doesn't deserve it. She kicks the ground. He used to call me Judy when he wanted to be nice. My name does not mean nice, I tell her. And when she looks at me, I whisper in her ear the name I've called myself since Violet died. What do I do? Judith whispers. Her eyes are burning, hot and bright. Where do I go now? You can live with me, I offer. The house is big enough, but I need your help. Help with what? Mr. Trigan likes to watch little girls. He only comes out when a girl is alone, made vulnerable by distance, age, fear. He corners her with treats or puppies and lures her deeper into the swamp. Into the dim place, where time doesn't pass the right way, where no one can hear her scream. The next August... When the house across the cul-de-sac is foreclosed upon. When the police believe Kathy has run off with her daughter to escape an abusive husband. All three becoming no more than files on a basement desk in an underfunded, 
overworked local department, when the night is unbearably hot and sticky with murder. Judith and I head into the swamp. We go on the night her mother died, because grief has power, just like rage. Judith and I spend a year in mostly silence. I told her what happened to me. I told her about Mr. Try again. What is this, darling Violet? What have you brought me? This isn't a morsel, boy, not a proper treat. Her name is Tara. This won't do, my girl, this won't do at all. Try again. No. There is another reason Violet Wellington told no one about Mr. Try again. She knew she wouldn't be believed. Adults would blame her for her own trauma. They would say, Surely, you can remember what this man looked like, what he really looked like, where he is. It would have been her responsibility to point the way, and her fault when the police found nothing. Maybe she had lied. Girls lie, you know. Everyone knows that. If Violet was a boy, someone might have believed her. If Violet had described Mr. Try again, this is what she would have said. He has two faces. One in front, one in back. The front face looks smiley and nice. The back face is all teeth. No, he doesn't have a spine. He's two sides. And one is scary, and that's the one that eats. Violet would have been called a liar. So she lied. When she talked again, she said, The man who kidnapped me was short. He had crooked teeth. I don't remember where he took me. I was blindfolded. In the dim place, Violet could see all the swamps in the world connecting like root systems. The tendrils formed a domed roof, which existed nowhere Violet understood. The tip of one root would lead her to the edge of a patch of wetlands, and she'd clutch a rotting cattail so she'd see the way back once she found a new boy. She always went back. Mr. Trigan told her what he'd do if she didn't. She remembered her old house so far away, so long ago, and kept it painted like a watercolor masterpiece behind her eyes. She didn't sleep often. Mr. Trigan didn't like sleep. Besides, her only pillow was made from peach's fur. Then, when she went trying again, she found another girl who looked like her. Pale skin, brown hair, a house painted behind her eyelids. Violet came alive and smiled. She had a plan. Judith creeps through brittle grass, the ground sagging under her sneakers. There's a full moon tonight. It's sallow and sad, putting in minimal effort to shine yellowed light through scraggly willows and popped cattails. She doesn't bring a flashlight. 
Biscuit, she whispers, the name of the stray we set loose as bait. Here, boy. Judith's skin is damp with sweat. She doesn't want to be out alone. Worries that her dog is gone forever. Is afraid what will happen if her dad finds out she let Biscuit get away. Irresistible. The tall, white, tuxedoed figure glides from the heat. He steps from behind a clump of sumac, holding Biscuit. The dog is already dead, but Judith doesn't know that yet. Are you looking for your pet, darling girl? Judith freezes. Her heart rabbits in her ribs. Bipita, bipita, bipita. Mr. Try again always appears behind the girls he wants to take. Slowly, Judith turns around. She swallows, then remembers to nod and force a smile. Can I have my dog back? You must say the magic word, Judith. Whispers Mr. Try again. Judith takes a breath. Please? Mr. Try again's second face, the eating face, has its eyes closed. They only open when he's hungry. And right now, he's got a different hunger than the lust for succulent boy meat. He looks at Judith as if she's a chocolate-dipped, cream-filled bonbon, so sweet, so delicate, so innocent. If his eating eyes had been open, he would have seen what was stalking him. Judith sees. There is no magic word. Nothing Mr. Trigan says is true. He won't let you live, and he won't let you go home. Judith lets Mr. Trigan take her hand, the dead dog in his other arm, and he leads her through the swamp. She glances over her shoulder repeatedly, and he laughs that soft pat. Pat, you adorable little girl, sound. He thinks, she thinks, they're lost. She's checking to be sure I'm following. Violet took Tara by the hand and led her deeper into the swamp. The mosquitoes and deer flies didn't bother the girls. No hidden quagmires sucked them down to their deaths like Tara's mom believed would happen. The cattails were quiet. They knew this was not how things should be. When Violet and Tara reached the hole that led to the dim place, Violet turned to her scapegoat, put her hands on Tara's shoulders, and said the magic words. Try again. Try again. Try again. Then they were inside the dim place with its root ceiling and the smell of lies. And Mr. Try again, standing with his eating face to the mirror so he could pick clean his teeth. His smile face frowned when he saw Tara. 
All his eyes were open. This won't do, my girl. This won't do at all, Violet. Try again. No. While Tara stood there, frozen in terror, while Mr. Trygan licked his lips and inhaled the savory scent of girl fear, Violet grabbed the nearest root and pulled herself up. She scurried into the swamps a hundred miles from where she had snatched the other girl. She ran and ran and ran until she found a dirt road where she sat down. She wanted to cry, but she wasn't alive. So she waited, digging her fingers into gravel, waiting for Mr. Try again to come find her. Waited for sixteen years. Waited to see if she would ever regret what she did to Tara. You don't need to know what happened to all the girls in the dim place. You aren't going to be a voyeur to their pain. I remember these trails. The roots that snake, coil, skitter, or jump. I follow, silent and unseen, like how Violet was when she hunted boys. What the news reports never connected? Not all the missing children disappeared in swamps. Some vanished from daycare, some from school, some from their beds. In the end, they all ended up in the swamps. You can't see all the pieces if you don't know what the puzzle is supposed to look like. I made 97 children disappear. No one would have believed Violet Wellington if she'd told them. Girls are liars in the eyes of the world. That's why Mr. Trigan likes them so much. Who will believe her? Judith's toes brush the hole where the root leads down to the dim place. Mr. Trigan always makes the girls take the first step of their own volition. Then it's their fault. What happens to them after? Liar. Judith looks back once. I nod to her. I am watching. I am here. Judith steps into the hole and sinks. The dim place is just like Violet remembered. I have her memories. She slept on that small bed of rags behind the full-length mirror. She sharpened the knives on the butcher block table in the center of the room. It's not so much a room as it is a space lit against the gaping darkness all around it. The dim place. Tara is still here. <laughs> no, not Tara. That's wishful thinking. This is another girl, another face, who took her place here long ago. The girl lies on that bed, blank-eyed, whispering. Try again. Try again.
now that Judith is here. This girl can walk into the mirror and disappear with all the other ghost girls. Even when she banged her forehead and hands bloody on the glass, it would never break for her. It wouldn't let her through. There must be another girl in the dim place before the mirror will crack. Rose Darling, this is Judith. Mr. Trigan pulls Judith towards the rag bed. He'll make a new pillow from Biscuit to replace the one that was Peaches. Judith wrenches her arm free of his hold, and that's when the eating face opens its eyes and sees me. Mr. Trigan whirls around, coattails like lightning. Violet would have frozen, caught in that familiar vise of don't run, don't resist, it will hurt less if you're good. I am not Violet. I lunge at him. I told you I'd come back. Mr. Trigan grabs me, his hands crooked in smiling rage. Violet, the one who left, I have missed you, my sweet. Shall we try again? I seize his wrists before his fingers curl around my throat and awaken old bruises. No. Never again. He's powerful. But here's the thing about the dim place. It's not his any longer. I was here for half my life. For eight months that were fifteen years in his time. Girls stay until they are no longer girls in mind, even if their bodies don't change. And that's when he finds a new Judas goat. I lived here. I remember. And the dim place remembers me back. My feet are roots, sinking into the shadowy floor into the mud that never sticks to clothes or skin. My hands are sinewy briars. My nails are burrs that dig into his forearms. I hold him, not the way he held me. The old wounds reappear in scar shadows along my back and ribs and thighs. Mr. Trigan hisses through his smile. Dear Violet, Sweet Violet, how do you intend to stop me? My name isn't Violet, I say. Violet was the girl he killed, like Tara and all the ones who'd come before me. I'm Knife. I can see Judith in the mirror. She pulls out the blade I gave her. Holds it in one hand, her rock in the other. When she wandered, she practiced throwing stones against stagnant ponds or hurled pebbles at bug-rotted apples on an old tree. Her aim was spectacular. She hurls the rock and shatters the mirror. Mr. Trigan screeches. Now his eating face can't communicate with his smile face. I can see Judith without the mirror. She crouches on the table. The table where I learned how to make boys become tiny pieces. Finger food. 
Mr. Trigan called the pieces. My fingers to put the scraps in his mouth, wriggling and bloody just the way he liked. She's tall enough to reach Mr. Trigan now. I shove him towards her. Judith swings her knife with all her strength and cuts off Mr. Trigan's eating face. A billowing wail fills the dim place, the screams of all the boys he has ever consumed. His strength goes out as the dead boys vanish, finally free, and I fling him down onto the table. I remember where the heavy chains are kept. I remember how to click locks into place. Judith breathes hard, white-knuckled grip unflinching on the knife handle. She doesn't seem to mind the blood on her shirt. Is that it? No. I stand over Mr. Try again. His white tuxedo is rotting into gray threads, and the maggots roil out of his skin and between his lips. There won't be any flies around us. Insects will touch dead things but they won't touch death. I put a hand on Judith's shoulder. Are you okay? She nods. She's still alive. I look at the other girl, Rose. She hasn't moved, but she's no longer whispering to herself. She can see me. She can have a new story after this. How do we kill him? Judith asks, hefting her knife. Mr. Trigan's eating face gnashes its teeth and writhes on the floor by my feet. I kick the face away. It can watch what we do. I don't know if he can be killed, but he isn't going anywhere. The dim place is mine now. There will be no more lost boys or final girls. I will dry up those roots that traverse the world, and when I am finished, there will never have been a dim place to begin with. If one method doesn't work, I tell Judith, and watch her eyes brighten. She smiles a slow, understanding smile. We try again. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the story. Please consider making a stop at our website at nightmare-magazine.com. If you'd like to help spread the word about the Nightmare Magazine podcast, go to iTunes, find the Nightmare Magazine podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Nightmare Magazine is published by John Joseph Adams. If you haven't already subscribed... Check out our many options at nightmare-magazine.com slash subscribe. The stories of this podcast are produced by Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy award-winning narrators Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. You can check out Skyboat Media's website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production is in association with Jim Freund. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. There's other ways you can be notified of new Nightmare Magazine content, 
You can subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, RSS feed, follow us on Twitter, or like our Facebook page. If you visit nightmare-magazine.com and click on this month's editorial, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Nightmare Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Sleep tight. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.